The 16th century Scottish Reformation is often viewed as a battle between two people, Mary Stuart, who was the Catholic, uh, the, the Queen of Scots, and John Knox, the leader of the Scottish Reformation. Mary knew it was a battle she would lose. She's once reported to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And she was right to fear his prayers. Uh, Even while Knox was exiled in Geneva, the roots of the Reformation in Scotland began to grow and spread, fueled mostly by small groups of people praying who were encouraged by the leaders of the Reformation, including by Knox uh, from afar. And all the time that he was away, Knox continued to gather together with other people to pray for the true message of the gospel to be established in Scotland. And when Knox uh, finally returned, that was the kind of trigger that sparked the Reformation in Scotland into action. You see, throughout history, God has used the prayers of his people to advance the gospel. Jonathan Edwards gathered people together to pray And the first great awakening spread throughout the American colonies. John Wesley and George Whitfield gathered people to pray. And the evangelical revival spread through England. William Carey gathered people to pray. And the modern missionary movement was born. Jeremiah Lanfear gathered people to pray. And the New York revival of 1857 was set in motion and spread across America and across Europe. Evan Roberts gathered people to pray. And the Welsh revival began. A group of ordinary Korean believers gathered together in 1907 in Pyongyang. And the gospel began to spread through Korea like wildfire. History has been changed time after time. Because of small groups of people getting together to pray. And yet, if you're anything like me, you probably find prayer quite tough. Tiring, trying, even tedious sometimes. I think part of our challenge with prayer is that as a society, we love things that produce immediate, visible results. We love activity and busyness and tasks, tangible things that make us feel like we did something. But prayer, especially sort of prayer meetings, they're often not like that, are they? We come together, we close our eyes, we bow our heads, we open our mouths to praise and thank God, we make our prayers and petitions for people to come to faith in Jesus, for the church to grow in love and holiness and compassion and humility and joy. We pray for the spread of the gospel among the nations, for the persecuted church to stand firm. And then we do it all again. Week after week, month after month, year after year. And sometimes we see amazing, immediate, obvious answers to prayer. Praise God for those times. But it's not always like that, is it? Prayer doesn't often seem to produce immediate, visible results. Usually, actually, it's slow and invisible. It requires patience and perseverance. In our age, when 
activity and busyness equal fruitfulness, when we want instant results, the quiet act of patient, persevering together prayer is easily forsaken. But the clear message of Jesus is that that difficult, invisible, slow, countercultural work of praying together is the thing that upholds everything we do as a church. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It was either Martin Luther or Martin Luther King. Nobody seems quite sure which, but given that one was named after the other, it doesn't really matter that much. One of them said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. In other words, if we do not pray, we will not live. It means prayerlessness is like spiritual suicide. And yet so often we, we treat prayer, and especially praying together, as a kind of optional add-on if we're not too busy that week. Whether we realise or not, we are dependent on our Sovereign Lord for everything we do. Even the very breath in our lungs right now comes from Him. And the way that we give expression to that dependence is through prayer. We, we want the gospel to grow and spread in our city and across the world. And the way that we ask God to do that is through prayer. And coming together to do that reminds us of something very important. That the growth and flourishing of the gospel and on Christ's church does not depend on us at all. It's about him. And the way that we express that is through prayer. Through prayer, we, we come to God with empty hands. It's our way of saying to the Lord, help. We, we need you. What that means is that if we're not praying, what we're saying with our lives, if not with our lips, is that we don't really need him. Or that we only need him if we find ourselves in especially difficult situations. Or that we only need him as long as we're not too busy doing other things. Or that we only need him in a, in a tokenistic kind of way where we pay lip service to our dependence on the Lord. But in reality, we actually think if we perform or practice or prepare well enough, we'll probably be okay. If we're not praying... We are saying with our lives, if not with our lips, that the growth of the gospel is actually about us. That it does depend on us. All of that is the height of human arrogance and pride, isn't it? So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at the example of the early church praying and praying together. And this passage in Acts 4 it gives us a glimpse into the early church praying together. And what it shows us is that there's a connection. A connection between the church praying together and the spread of the gospel. The church praying together and the spread of the gospel. We're going to see three things, three ways this passage instructs us. And here's, here's the first thing it tells us to do. Lift your voices to the sovereign Lord. Lift your voices to the sovereign Lord. I think it's actually quite fitting 
like Danny said, um, this whole episode, it starts with Peter and John going to the temple to a prayer meeting. And it's kind of fitting then, isn't it, that it ends with a prayer meeting. And in between, the apostles have this run-in with the Sanhedrin. They're a mix of, uh, you should imagine a mix of like bishops, judges and MPs. They're a group with religious authority and political power. And in response to Peter and John preaching the gospel, they are called in for questioning. The Sanhedrin try to use their considerable political power to intimidate and to threaten. They command the apostles not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus and threaten them with the consequences if they dare to defy them. This is um, the apostles' first run-in with the same people that killed Jesus. But their first response is not to panic, but to pray, isn't it? Verse 23 and 24, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all that, that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. The first thing Peter and John do is they go and they find the church that, by the way, is already gathered together, probably, I presume, praying. They find comfort in the community of other Christians. This group of people who've repented and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, who've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, who've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the break, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so they pray. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, let me say right off the bat, there is no direct command in the New Testament to pray like this. That's partly just how Acts works. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It doesn't have commands. So we have to work out which of these bits still apply to us. And there are parts even of this passage we kind of instinctively know don't apply to us in exactly the same way anymore so I cannot point to a chapter and a verse in the bible that says you must pray together okay just full disclosure about that and yet this is the clear pattern of the early church praying together as a church is what they always did and it seems pretty clear to me at least that Luke is commending their example to us not as one just to ignore so in chapter 1, they all joined together constantly in prayer. In chapter 2, they devoted themselves to prayer. In chapter 12, when Peter is released from prison, he goes to find the church. Oh, guess what they're doing? Praying together. In Acts 13, before Paul and Barnabas are sent off together as, uh, to, to share the gospel in Europe, what are the church doing? Praying together. And that's just a handful of examples. I think for, for lots of us, maybe even for most of us, when we think about prayer, we think primarily in terms of personal, private prayer. And Jesus does command us to do that. He says, when you go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Jesus commands us to pray on our own. But the Bible also shows us the deep significance of God's people coming together to pray. And actually, if you read through the New Testament, most of the examples of people praying are groups of believers praying together. 
And actually, that's implicit in Jesus' teaching. When he instructs his disciples how to pray, just a few verses on from when he says that, he says, how you sh- he says, pray like this. Our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Those plurals are not accidental. They're very deliberate. Because when we pray, Jesus wants us to recognize two sets of relationships. Our relationship with the Father, my Father, and our relationships with each other. Because God is not just my Father, but our Father. Clearly then, prayer was never meant to be just a private exercise with purely personal benefits. Jesus intends for us to pray for others and with others. He always intended it to be something that his church would do together as well as on our own. Prayer is one of those incredible privileges that flows to us from the gospel. Prayer is the fruit of Jesus' death on the cross, the, the curtain torn in two, the way to God opened up for us. Prayer is the fruit of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus raised up to the Father's side where he always lives to intercede for us. Prayer is the fruit of the Holy Spirit sent into our hearts since we have access to the Father by one Spirit who assures us we are God's children, who enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. It's a glorious privilege, but it's often a privilege that we don't prize. If you look around the world and throughout history, prayer thrives where persecution exists. Of those 50 countries that Aileen mentioned earlier, I bet if we went to their prayer meetings, they would probably feel quite different to ours. Because in our case, the, the absence of hostility and hardship, it creates this sense of self-sufficiency. That means we just don't feel like we need to pray that much. Certainly not as regularly or as urgently or as fervently as we ought to. But as we join this story in Acts 4, we're joining a group of people who know they are needy and powerless. And yet who come before the one who they know is able to meet that need. And they do it together, unanimous in their sense of helplessness and dependence. And beloved, whether we realize or not, that is us. That is us. If you're not giving yourself to prayer, though, it's because deep down you don't really believe that. There are only two kinds of people in the world who don't need to pray, the proud and the powerful. We're not the powerful, though. We're the powerless. We are not the strong, but the weak. We are not the knowledgeable, but the needy. Not the capable, but the dependent. And so we must pray. 
<laughs> Otherwise, what hope do we have? But praying together is more than just because we need the Lord. It starts there, but it's more than that. Because it's by praying together that unity grows. Praying together is a way of, of synchronizing our watches, of calibrating our compasses so that we're all heading in one direction together as a church. It's a way that we stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And it's by praying together that we, we just get better at praying. I get so easily distracted when I pray. I find it hard to pray for, for extended periods of time. My heart is often cold. It just gets caught up thinking about all these other things going on in my life. But when we come together to pray, it's easier to pray, isn't it? Your heart gets kind of warmed up by hearing other people. For the past few years, the elders have gone away for a couple of days together to do some planning and praying. And one of the things we do on that, we spend a couple of hours one afternoon praying through the whole members directory for every single person in the members directory by name. I could not do that on my own. I try and do that across a week, 20 minutes a day for eight to 10 people. But praying together with others, we, we probably do that for like an hour and a half, a couple of hours it takes us to do that. You can only do that because we pray together. And it's by praying together that our hearts are encouraged. Um, in November, I went to an FIEC leaders conference. And those of you who asked me how it was afterwards, the thing I told you was the best thing was, was praying together. Every single morning, we spent time praying together. And then there were a couple of specific prayer meetings across that conference. I came away just deeply encouraged by what the Lord was doing across the country in all these different churches, just like ours. So many times on a Wednesday evening as we've gathered together to pray, I've come away just feeling encouraged. Because other people have been praying. I've heard them pouring out your hearts to the Lord like, like I have. There's a, a spiritual dynamic to praying together that the Lord uses to work powerfully. So we must pray. And I want to suggest to you that we must pray together in humble recognition of who we are and who God is, the sovereign Lord. Lift your voices together to the sovereign Lord. And secondly, lift your eyes to the sovereign Lord. One of the things I find helpful about this passage is that we see how the church, the first Christians, prayed together. And the first thing that they do as they pray is they get their vision of God right. It's true, isn't it? When we come to pray, it's worth knowing whom we're coming to, isn't it? The sovereign Lord, verse 24. Now, when we, when we say that God is sovereign, we're basically saying that God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he has creator rights to rule over absolutely everything that exists and I want you to see the Lord really is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything look with me at verses 28 and 29 because these Christians they know that God is sovereign 
even over the evil conspiracy to kill Jesus. I'm not going to get into a long debate this morning about how we make sense of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. If you've got questions, come and chat to me afterwards. But I simply want to point out, the Bible doesn't see any contradiction between verses 28 uh, and uh, between verse 27 and 28. See? People make real decisions for which they are really responsible. The rulers met together, conspired together to kill Jesus. And yet, God is absolutely sovereign. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. But do you see a, a, a deeply robust understanding of God's sovereignty does not lead to sort of many hours of feeling perplexed. It leads to prayer. Because that, that knowledge that God is absolutely sovereign over absolutely everything, it humbles us. Because God doesn't need us. He doesn't even need our prayers. He does not need us at all. He doesn't need anyone's help or permission or cooperation. He is the sovereign Lord. And it inspires dependence as well. Because the one to whom we pray can do all things. You can pray with complete confidence because whatever you ask... However impossible it may seem to you, well, he's the sovereign Lord. He can do it. It's not hard for him. Whatever we ask that God has promised, we know he's going to do it because he's told us he will. He's promised. He is working all things for the good of those who love him. It's an amazing example of using scripture to show us who God is. That's why we start every prayer meeting on a Wednesday. We're looking at the Bible just to remind us who God is. It in, helps interpret their situation. It directs their prayers in light of who he is. Lift your eyes to the sovereign Lord. And lastly, lift your requests to the sovereign Lord. As I've been looking at this passage this week, the thing that struck me is not so much what they do pray for, but what they don't pray for. Despite all the things that these believers face, not once do they ever pray for this problem to go away. They just don't pray for it. They ask God, consider their threats. I think it's a way of sort of saying, you know, Lord, we, we don't really know what to pray about this, so we're just going to lay it before you and leave it up to you. They do not pray for the persecution to end or for the threats to be taken away. They just say, here it is, Lord. We just consider that. They do have a couple of specific requests. They ask God to help them to do what only they can do with his help. And they ask God to do what only he can do. <laughs> so they ask God to give them boldness. Verse 29, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And they pray and ask God for him to do what only he can do. To move in power through signs and wonders. But here's the big thing I, I want us to see about this. Faced with great hostility, they do not pray for safety. They do not pray for security. 
They do not pray for protection. I'm not saying those are bad things to pray for. I'm just saying they, they don't pray for them. There's much more important things. They pray for courage. For boldness to keep speaking about Jesus despite the threats. For God to so work in them by the Spirit that they will keep speaking about Jesus. To spread the gospel whatever it costs them. And God comes down amazingly to answer their prayer, shaking the room. That's one of those things I don't think, we, we sort of know instinctively, don't we? We don't expect that necessarily anymore. It's a sign that God has heard their prayers, that he's answered their prayers. One of those amazing answers to prayer. And out they go to proclaim the gospel. And do you know what happens? In Acts chapter 5, the apostles get pulled in again by the Sanhedrin. And this time they don't just get threatened, they get flogged. And what do they do? They go home rejoicing. Rejoicing for being counted worthy for suffering for Jesus' sake. And they keep preaching and the gospel keeps spreading. We need that kind of work of the Spirit in our own day, don't we? I know I do. In my own evangelism, I am so often concerned about what other people think of me than how much they need Jesus. And so I'm timid. I need that work of the Spirit. And here's the good news this morning. That same spiritual power that was available to them is still available to us. And the pattern of Acts and the pattern of the whole of church history shows that the thing the Lord uses more often than not to do that is a church praying together. Now, it, it might be that the powerlessness we sort of feel in our evangelism might just be a coincidence. But I wonder if it's possible that we've lost that connection. The church praying together and the bold witness and so spread of the gospel. The thing is, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely upon preparation, we get what preparation can do. When we rely upon ourselves, we get what we can do, which is not very much. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. John Piper says, prayer is like the splicing of our limp little wire with the lightning bolt of heaven. That is what happens when we pray. Without that, our church is powerless. But when we pray together, we grasp God's lightning bolt. We grasp the arm of God's omnipotent power. Samuel Chadwick was a, a Methodist minister in the 19th century. And, and he saw in, in the wake of the sort of uh, the Wesley's 
dying and, and the sort of things moving on after them, he saw lots of churches that replaced prayer with more programs, that replaced intercession with activity. And their churches began to decline. And this is what Samuel Chadwick said about that. He said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. During the ministry of uh, Charles Spurgeon in London, thousands of people became Christians, maybe even tens of thousands. And one evening, a visitor went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to ask him the secret of why his ministry was so fruitful. Charles Spurgeon did not say anything. He simply walked the visitor to the main room in the church and opened the doors. And what the visitor saw was more than 1,000 people, church members, praying together for the work of the church and for people to be saved. He didn't need to say anything else. Look, I, I know we live in a very different time and place to Charles Spurgeon. I'm afraid you don't have the Prince of Preachers uh, here. Our hopes are much more modest uh, than his. But if you want to see the church grow in love and holiness, in joy and humility, if you want to see sinners saved, if you want to see the gospel spread through our community, if you want to know the power of God to speak boldly, prioritize praying together. May it not be said of us that we do not have because we do not ask God. I'm going to pray quickly and then uh, Aileen is going to lead us in a, a longer time of prayer together.